Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz. Started this podcast, go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Bullwine. And, you know, we are on the spine train. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump into today's episode. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. Hit the subscribe button. Hopefully you have already left a review by now. If not, please do so. We would really appreciate it. Now let's go ahead and get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Since we're since we're all about the odontoid right now, um, what is the classification system for odontoid fractures? It's referred to as the Anderson and uh, Delonzo uh, classification system, and again, it's type one, two, and three. Type one is an oblique fracture through the tip, and just the tip, and it is a usually like a transverse uh, ligament rupture. Like you were talking about, I think that's a type two transverse ligament injury is an avulsion of the ligament. Um, and then yeah. a type two uh, Anderson and Delonzo classification of odontoid fractures is a fracture through the base of the dens. And that's the most common one. And that is the uh, location of the uh, separation between the two ossification centers. So it's uh, kind of a vascular watershed area. And uh, type 2A uh, is when it's a comminuted fracture through the base, whereas a type regular type 2 is more of like a, a transverse fracture through it. And then a type 3 fracture is when the fracture is actually through the C2 body itself uh, and not necessarily the entire odontoid process as it projects cranially into the uh, articulation with atlas. And so um, what's the imaging modality of choice when you're looking for these C2 fractures? Yeah, so this is going to be um, a CT scan. You know, if you want to further assess it, you get a CT scan. Of course, that's great. It's showing you bony architecture. And if there's any injury or if there's any suspicion of a spinal cord injury, you can always get an MRI. And this also can clue you in and let you know if there's injury to the transverse ligament. And if you want to sound smart, you can tell your attending, oh, this is a type one lesion. This is actually a mid-substance tear. Or you can say this is a type two lesion. There's actually an avulsion of the transverse ligament. They'll say, oh, okay, you've been reading up and you've been studying. But little did you know, did they know that you just listened to this episode before you got in <laughs> and you just heard it and now you sound great. So <laughs> uh, yeah, you are welcome. Uh, so what is the treatment for these type one and, uh, and type three odontoid injuries? So again, the injuries where you just have an oblique fracture through the tip or fracture through the C2 body. Uh, those ones are going to be uh, rigid C collars uh, for about six to 12 weeks. Very similar to how you treat the more stable type uh, Atlas injuries. Um, uh, this is just going to be a C collar. And um, again, uh, you, you did mention, and, and I, I didn't bring this up before, but you mentioned that, you know, sometimes these are, these are polytrauma patients, they're upended, they're uh, sedated, intubated, and you 
are treating them with a C collar, not only are you moving them because of uh, sacral uh, DQ bolster prophylaxis, but you constantly, every time you round on them, you want to check their kind of underneath their chin and posterior neck to make sure that the C collar is also not causing an ulcer uh, underneath their chin. And uh, it's just kind of a, a clinical tip. You won't be tested on it, but just something to pick up so you don't have to do an M&M uh, <laughs> yeah. later because the patient had a completely preventable ulcer form. Um, but moving on, uh, what is, so we seek collar for type one and three, but uh, what about type two odontoid fractures? What's, what's the biggest issue with those when you're evaluating them and considering treatment? Yeah, so these patients can get non-unions and the non-union rate is actually pretty high. One in every three people, around 32% of patients um, with these type two odontoid fractures get a, a non-union. And factors that are associated uh, with non-unions are number one and the most important thing you need to know is anything that has greater than five millimeters of displacement. Um, any fractures that are angulated greater than 10 degrees, patients that are greater than 40 years of age, and um, patients that have posterior displacement that's going is also associated with an increased non-union rate with non-operative treatment. So again, to repeat, if you are choosing to treat these patients non-operatively, things that lead to a non-union of the odontoid is greater than five millimeters of fracture displacement, angulation greater than 10 degrees, age for, uh, greater than 40, degree, 40 years old, as well as posterior displacement. And if you want to read up some more about this, there was an article published in JBJS in 2004 um, entitled Factors Associated with Non-Union in Conservatively Treated Type 2 Fractures of the Odontoid Process. So that is where um, those numbers are coming from. You can go and read in a little bit more about that. So we spoke kind of about the risks for non-union uh, when these are being treated non-operatively, but what, I guess, you know, what is the treatment of choice for a type two odontoid fracture? You know, there's really no right answer, um, which also means there's really no wrong answer. Uh, and the nice part about that in terms of test taking purposes is you are not going to really be tested on that because there isn't a clearly defined right and wrong. For those with non-displaced fractures and they don't have a lot of non-union risk, factor, risk factors like uh, smoking, uh, immunocompromised state, uh, malnutrition, that sort of stuff, then you can do a halo vest and uh, for about six to 12 weeks. If they're elderly, because we talked about that the elderly don't tolerate uh, halo vests very well, you can consider a C1 to C2 uh, fusion or a C collar. They're not tolerated very well, but you can consider it. And then uh, the thing with an orthosis is uh, a fibrous union can develop. And depending on the fall risk for that patient, they may be at an increased risk for eventual displacement if they take another fall. Um, but if they have a non-displaced fracture and they have a lot of non-union risk factors, then you do want to consider some form of surgical stabilization and the fracture pattern may help you decide on which surgery you choose. And then obviously displaced fractures, the ones you talked about with the increased angulation above 10 degrees, the greater than five millimeters of displacement and those with posterior displacement um, 
you are going to consider surgery in those patients, even if they are healthy non-smokers. Um, and so what are some of the different surgical options? Yeah, so one of the options is an anterior odontoid screw, which, you know, if you look at a lateral, um, it's literally a screw going like going from um, from caudally to cranially and it's just going ideally perpendicular to the fracture plane. And the thing with this anterior odontoid screw is that the fracture must be reduced before you uh, before you put your screws. Okay, so one thing that you can do to treat these type two odontoid fractures is place an anterior odontoid screw. You can also do a C1 to C2 transarticular screw with or without a wire. And things that you need to know is the internal carotids are at risk with a screw placement. And we talked about a C1 C2 transarticular screw a little bit earlier when we were talking about subaxial, um, no, not subaxial, atlantoaxial instability. We talked about C1, C2 transarticular screws. And then another thing you can do uh, to treat these is put a screw in the C1 lateral mass and then in C2, put a screw in the pedicle. Um, and, you know, this can be with or with some grafting um, in place. So those are some of the different treatments for these type two odontoid fractures. Again, anterior odontoid screw, a C1, C2 transarticular screw with or without wires, and a C1 lateral mass and C2 pedicle screw placement uh, with some grafting. Now, where does, you know, we just talked about the internal carotid being at risk for with screw placement for C1, C2 transarticular screw. Uh, now, uh, what, where does a vertebral artery course in relationship to the cervical spine? So it goes through the transverse foramen from C6 up to C2. And then uh, C2 is the last or the most cranial vertebral uh, segment that has a <clears throat> transverse foramen. And that's going to come out of that transverse foramen. And it courses on the superior aspect of C1 and then goes anterior into the foramen magnum and uh, joins forces uh, on the uh, with the contralateral side on the brainstem, and uh, you can see uh, vertebral artery injury with facet dislocations, uh, occipital cervical disassociations like a traction injury, and then displaced transverse foramen fractures can cause a direct laceration to the artery. And um, one thing to note when you're placing screws and you're in the area of the vertebral artery. Um, let's say you uh, you're you're getting ready for screw placement. Um, you use your awl and you're going through, and all of a sudden you feel like give way, and you remove the awl, and, and you see brisk bleeding. Mm. Uh, the what you want to do in that situation is you want to go ahead and just place the screw and perform a. Uh, pretty much like a compression of the vertebral artery, mm -hmm. just like you would provide uh, manual compression to a bleed uh, out in the field. You place that screw, but then you can't place a screw on the other side because if you bag the other side, then you're screwed. And so then you have to come up with a different surgical plan, whether that's uh, posterior wiring or you have to fuse from the anterior side. And so that's just a, a surgical note. and. I don't know, it may be tested, maybe not. I'm not entirely sure about that, but just something to note when you're in the OR. Um, and then uh, what about 
like a, a traumatic spondylolisthesis of the C spine, uh, and what really is that? A uh, what sort of injury is that? Yeah, so I mean, if you think of just the word traumatic, you know, something to do with trauma and then spondylo, so spine and then lysthesis slip. So you have a traumatic slip of the spine. And so this can um, be due to bilateral fractures of the pars and interarticularis. And we also call this a hangman fracture. So again, hangman fracture is going to be bilateral fractures of the pars interarticularis, which can lead to traumatic spondylolisthesis. And the typical mechanism for this is you have um, spine hyperextension, compression, and then you get rebound flexion. I don't have any great ways to remember that just besides just thinking in your head of, you know, just hyperextension, compression, rebound flexion. You know, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily know if this is one, like if you are driving, you get hit from behind, you know, how you have that hyperextension and it breaks really quickly and then you get that rebound flexion. But I don't know if you get compression with that injury. So I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, just know that traumatic spondylolisthesis. Anytime you see bilateral fractures of the pars articularis, you call that that hangman's fracture. And there is a classification um, for this. I, I tried hard not to, not not necessarily not to put it in, but I kept seeing this classification everywhere. So I was like, all right, it must be important. You know, I hadn't read, read too much about um, about spine trauma and cervical spine trauma, but this was, uh, this was mentioned in almost every source, so might as well include it. Uh, what is the Levine and Edward classification for traumatic spondylolisthesis of the axis? Uh, just like every other classification we've talked about, it has type one, two, and three. Uh, type one is axial compression with hyperextension, and uh, you have usually less than three millimeters of displacement and no angular deformity. Uh, type two is hyperextension, axial load rebound flexion. And that's when you're going to see three millimeters or more of translation with angulation. A type 2A is flexion distraction. You're going to have significant angulation, but not much translation because it's when you have a flexion distraction injury, the the point of axis where it's going to rotate around is at the anterior portion of the spine. And so you're going to have angular deformity form around it, but it's not going to translate anteriorly. And then a type three uh, traumatic spondy is a flexion distraction plus hyperextension. And basically what that is, is a type one injury with bilateral C2, 3 facet dislocations. And we'll get into facet dislocations here in a, in a minute. But um, again, it's uh, you're really looking for if there's displacement or if there's angulation. And uh, if there's not a lot of displacement, not a lot of angulation, then it's a type 1. Or if there is a lot of displacement and angulation, then you're looking at a type 2 or 3 with a 3 being a facet dislocation. And what's the treatment for these traumatic spondies? Yeah, so a type one, again, where you just have axial compression and hyperextension and you don't have uh, or it's less than three millimeters of displacement and there's no angulation, that is one you could treat in a rigid arthrosis. Um, type two, uh, these are going to be the ones where you do have kind of that severe, um, severe angulation or that type 2A. For these, you can 
aim to try to reduce these. And if you can get it, and if you can get a reduction, immobilize it and with a halo. And then if you're not able to maintain a reduction or, um, or it's displaced greater than five millimeters, that may be one where you may have to um, do some surgical, different type of surgical options for them. And I'll discuss those in a second. And then for our type threes, they're going to need surgery. You know, these, again, these type threes are going to be the ones where you have flexion dysfunction and hyperextension. Um, so this is, you know, that type one along with bilateral C2, C3 facet dislocations. And the surgical options for these, and again, our surgical options uh, would be for these patients with traumatic spondylolisthesis are going to be these type two injuries. Uh, and that's going to be the type two injuries where you're unable to maintain a reduction or there's just continued displacement greater than five millimeters than any type three injuries, especially when you have the bilateral facet dislocations. So our surgical options are going to be posterior C1 to C3 fusion. Uh, it can be an anterior C2 to C3 interbody fusion. Uh, and this can also be bilateral C2 pars articular screws. So um, you know, those are come up some of the options for treating traumatic spondylolisthesis. Again, you have um, posterior C1 to C3 fusion and anterior C2 to C3 interbody fusion. And then you can also have bilateral C2 pars articularis screws. Now, if you get a patient with um, bilateral facet dislocations, and, and this, was, this is one that a couple of different sources were saying different things, but I think I just stuck with what the the AOS review book said um, for that for my answer on this. Um, but what is the management for an awake patient with bilateral facet dislocations? So this is uh, somebody where you're going to close reduce them with traction. So you're placing the uh, oh Gardner Wells. I just came up with that in my head. I think there you go. Wells tongs. Um, ah. in the ER and uh, you're going to basically uh, tilt the bed up uh, so that they're, the patient's on an incline with their head uh, above their feet and uh, place a pulley at the top of the bed and you're adding weight uh, just a couple of pounds at a time uh, to reduce that uh, patient and after every weight you add you're doing a complete neuro exam and as soon as that uh, as soon as you either see or feel the clunk of the reduction or if their uh, <clears throat> uh, presentation changes if they were moving their feet you add another five pounds and now they're not moving their feet anymore you have to stop and get an immediate MRI um, if they do reduce successfully, you're still getting an MRI after the reduction because you want to evaluate for any hematoma or remaining uh, disc material that can be impinging on the spinal cord and uh, prepare for surgery just because they, they did dislocate. So, I mean, everything is ruptured in these patients and they will need some form of stabilization. But if you're able to close reduce them with traction and they remain awake that whole time, then it's better than obtaining an immediate MRI and uh, taking whisking them off to surgery. Um, but if they are obtunded and they're not able to do a, a physical exam, then you get an immediate uh, MRI uh, in those patients just because you don't want to take the time to reduce them 
and cause potential further injury to the spinal cord because they're not able to participate in an exam. And uh, let's say you have a patient, they're awake, uh, but they have uh, neurologic deficits already. Do you still want to do a close reduction on them? Yes. So uh, per the AOS review book, um, you still do a close reduction um, with traction, whether their neurological deficits are present or not. So you will still attempt a close reduction. So they come in and they have neurological deficits uh, and they're awake. You can do a close reduction uh, if they have no neurological deficits and they still have this um, uh, facet dislocation, you still attempt a closed reduction. Now, what surgery should be considered if there is residual herniated disc um, is going to be that is present after a close reduction of the cervical facet dislocation? Uh, so, you, uh, if there is residual herniated disc, especially in the C spine, um, that's where you're doing an anterior decompression first because uh, you won't, uh, you need the spine to be relatively mobile. Uh, to distract the vertebral bodies to get all of that disc out. If you go posterior first and you fuse them and you lock them up with hardware, then trying to retrieve the disc material anteriorly is pretty much next to impossible because you're not able to distract the vertebral bodies and get that disc material out. So you always go anterior first, decompress them, and then a posterior fusion or a combined fusion where you um, while your anterior place in your plate and uh, screws for the uh, anterior plate, and then you go posterior. Um, and then let's say, uh, so we talked about bilateral facet dislocations. There is such thing as unilateral. It's more of a rotation type injury where only one side is dislocated. What's the treatment for both unilateral and bilateral facet dislocations after reduction? Yeah, so after it's reduced for unilateral, uh, mo uh, for unilateral facet dislocations after it's redu reduced already, you can uh, immobilize and closely follow these patients up. So they do not necessarily need um, surgical stabilization for for any bilateral facet dislocations. Just like you just said earlier, I mean, there's a significant soft tissue um, injury. I mean, there. This is a bilateral uh, dislocation. This it is not stable, <laughs> so you need to surgically stabilize that. Um, both anterior and posterior procedures work, uh, but you know, in my reading, it said that sometimes posterior is uh, preferred due to the biomechanical and anatomic advantages. So unilateral and it's reduced. Immobilize them and have them closely follow up. If they have bilateral facet dislocations, surgically stabilize them. So that is the answer for that. And I think, I think we have covered all of, well, C-spine. I think we have covered C-spine and, um, and I, yeah, I think that's it for cervical spine. And, you know, there's a whole other parts of the spines that we'll get to in some future episodes, but uh, at least I think we got the neck covered. Yep. I think so. Well, uh, until next time. And we'll, until we come back with, uh, with some of that lumbar spine talk, we will, uh, we will, call a day for for here and again if you're listening and you have any feedback or questions or you're saying yeah you guys got that totally wrong feel free to email us and uh, and let us know uh, and we will we will shout you out and make the correct adjustments if need be we have done it everybody we have finally finished up the c-spine 
series of our OITE slash our board review series. I hope you all have enjoyed it. I hope you all have learned some stuff. If you have, let us know. Send me an email, nailitortho at gmail.com or leave a review in the review section on iTunes, Stitcher, however you listen to us. That would help us out a bunch. And it would let us know how much you enjoyed listening to the episode. So until next time, hit that subscribe button.